6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Okay, we are in session 6, in which we're going to address specifically chapter 5 of the Epistle of the Hebrews. And just by way of a little bit of review for those that have joined us recently... Hebrews is considered the riddle, if you will, of the New Testament. The authorship is anonymous, and uh, we take for granted, in fact, I think I can remove all doubt, if you want to take the time on it, that Paul wrote it. But that's debated by some. He didn't sign it for some very good reasons. Many scholars spend their efforts supporting various conjectures, and it's very interesting as I study those conjectures, the ones that really understand the book are the ones that also happen to recognize Paul's authorship. That might be unrelated, it may be operative. But in any case, we do know the author had a vast knowledge of the Old Testament, but he also was a Hellenistic Jew. And he recognized the people he's writing to were believers, that's very important to understand, and they, they were, uh, had much, they're facing a lot of very serious persecution, and that's what he is dealing with there. Some of the issues are the nature of the warnings. The book is built around five warnings. Many people that study the book misunderstand. They see those warnings as interruptions. No, they are really the pivotal points the author's making. But in any case, you want to understand those warnings as we go. You need to understand to whom it was written. Let's not for you. Th- you may think I'm overemphasizing this. All through the letter, it's clear that he's writing to Jewish believers. He puts himself in with them. We, us, etc. All the way through it. And the real thrust of this epistle is to, it plugs a hole, a huge hole, in the typical Christian's profile of what he believes. Because too much in our culture, if you accept Jesus Christ and you become justified by faith, that's the end of the road in most people's perspective. Not realizing, no, that's just first base. And that's what this this is, the real thrust of Hebrews is going to, I'll show you, is your inheritance. You can't lose your salvation, but you can miss an opportunity to inherit things that are fantastic that God has for you, for, the, for, for those that are faithful. So we're going to be talking about the dangers being presented for not persevering to the end. Finishing well is the name of the game. Now the source of the difficulties is that the kingdom is the central theme of all Scripture. The kingdom of heaven. God, Christ's kingdom on the earth. And one reason the book is so misunderstood is so many scholars are amillennial in their perspective. They assume it's allegorical. Allegories are a license to invent. No, we take the Bible seriously and we think God means what He says and says what He means. And if so, this book is a cornerstone of the, of, of, uh, of the kingdom that's coming. And this, the tragedy is that most denominations that come out of the Reformation... Uh, have, uh, have a vestige of amillennial attitudes about the kingdom. And as a result, they'll be blind to what this book is really talking about. Amillennium is not a peripheral issue. 
My dear friend Walter Martin used to regard, he, he was premillennial, but he regarded eschatology in general as peripheral theology, shouldn't divide fellowship. And he's right about that. But amillennial is the first wire in the road, and if you're amillennial, you'll miss a great deal of what God has here for you. There's more prophecy about the millennium than any other period of time in the entire Bible. It's not just Revelation 20. It's all through it. And it's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I taught the millennium for many years. Uh, I've always been premillennial. But, uh, in, in, but I've never, I never connected it out. I never re until recently recognized that it's the, it's, the Davidic, it's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That changes the perspective. It's our inheritance, not our justification. Our justification by, Christ's, by, by our faith in Christ alone is taken for granted throughout this entire epistle. Yeah, that's not an issue. Our inheritance is. And it's, it, our inheritance will be a result of our faithfulness and our obedience. So we want to find out what that's all about. I also want to highlight Rademacher's model for salvation, which I think is also a key to understanding. That is that salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. A past tense is our separation from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. The present tense is separation from the power of sin. And as believers, we, have, we can call on the Holy Spirit to give us power over sin. And our, the future tense, of course, is our separation from even the presence of sin. And when we, at, at, at the, uh, with our resurrection bodies and the rest of it. So, past tense justification, present tense really called sanctification, and glorification. We encourage our students in the Institute to use those terms, not salvation is, is, is uh, too broad to be uh, precise enough. So, all three of these are simply elements, past, present, and future, of what we collectively call salvation. Okay. The major pillars of Jerusalem, the author is going to go through and attack the major pillars of Judaism. He's talking to Jewish believers and reminding, of th reminding them of things that they should already know. That Judaism is not the answer, Christ is. And he institutes five warnings. And the issue in each of the five warnings is ultimately our inheritance, not our justification. And uh, he's going to introduce a new priesthood, a new covenant. Then he's going to go through a, a whole, what we call the hall of faith, the heroes of the past. And, uh, and the real goal is, is to become a metakoi, an overcomer, the partaker in Christ. And uh, so the first seven verses are just going to present Jesus as a new and better deliverer. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses, a greater leader than Joshua. But in dispersed here, we'll discover warnings, five warnings. We've had two of them already. We're going to get to the third one tonight. But uh, we're going to talk about uh, the priest better than Aaron. And then the warning number three of the five is the big one. That's the riddle that has many, many Christians confused, uncertain, lying awake nights, if you will. And we'll try to deal with that. And uh, warning number three. When we get to chapter 8, it'll shift. We'll t start talking about the, the very thing that gives the New Testament its name, that we're in a new covenant with a better sanctuary and a better sacrifice. And then the, then the epistle will shift to practical applications of all of this. And that's where we get the, the fourth warning, the hall of faith, exhortation to endurance, and then the fifth warning. So that's a quick snapshot of where we are. The, when we started out, the first chapter, uh, establishing the Son of God's superiority over the, initially the angels. Um, it's interesting that every point that was made, I won't go through them again, but the point I want to make is every one of these is supported by Scripture. 
the writer here is not relying on any apostolic authority, even though he could in a sense. He deliberately did not sign it because he didn't want to. Uh, he, he saw Christ himself as the apostle to the Jews. That's the way he deals with them. The only place in the Bible where it speaks of Jesus as the apostle is in this epistle because the writer is regarding him as the apostle, the writer being the apostle to the Gentiles, namely Paul. But in any case, what's interesting, every point he makes is built on a foundation that his listeners have accepted. They're Jews. They know their Old Testament. And every point he made in the first chapter, we had seven different quotes from seven different places in the Old Testament making those points. That'll be a style all the way through. And he goes through and highlights, we, last time we talked all the way, Moses and Christ are contrasted, and, and I won't go through all those again. And the seven proofs of his superiority, that's where he, he, he positions Christ as an apostle to the Jews in contrast to Moses as an apostle to the Jews. In each case, of course, Jesus obviously deliberately eclipsing all of these. And uh, so Moses was, after all, just a servant in his house, and, <laughs> and Jesus is the son that inherits there's uh, one thing that came up in earlier chapters where God swore. Not very often does God swear an oath, but he swears an oath in his wrath that they, people involved, shall not enter into my rest. And that is, was leaned upon, especially last time. And what do we mean by his rest and how is that used? They shall not enter into my rest. And uh, we'll, talk, we'll give you just a quick summary. And you remember in, at the provocation in, in uh, Numbers 13, they were confronted with the opportunity to get, go enter the land, and 10 spies said, gee, they, they reconnoitered for 12 guys for 40 days. The 10 guys came back and said, hey, we can't handle it. They're too big for us. Joshua and Caleb said, come on, God's on our side. They, they folded. They, they didn't have the, the faith to go in. So God took an oath and uh, so told the ones that didn't go, that generation was going to pass away during those 40 years. It's their children that would inherit the possession of the land. And over a million were saved out of Egypt. I point out to you, there are only two inherited land. But uh, Psalm 95 was a pivotal uh, reference for that whole uh, business. And of course, that's where God, the, in, the, in the time of David, that oath that God made about disinheriting them is renewed in David's time through Psalm 95 and is quoted by the writer to Hebrews. So that brings us up to date. So let's talk about these rests. The original rest, of course, was God's rest that was instituted in Genesis 2 too. When he rested, the concept of rest isn't relaxation. The concept of rest means the cessation of works. His works were completed, so he rested. It wasn't that he was tired. It was that his job was done. You see the difference? It's important to understand that. We hear rest. We think, well, we, visual, you know, we visualize a hammock or something. No, no, no. The idea is that he, he finished his task. He met his objectives. Okay. Well, that Canaan rest is what occurs, of course, in Numbers 13 and 14. That's where they get to, they, they've, been, they've been saved out of Egypt, Red Sea, all of that. And they've now got the opportunity to enter the land, and they failed to do it. They haven't got the, the faith to go forward. And so that's when... The, the, to, to, to earn their Canaan rest. They had a task to go to take over the land. They didn't do it. And so they are relegated to 38 years of wandering, a 38-year detour for an 11-day journey. And uh, that, that there's a lesson. What we're interested in isn't just the history. It's the lesson for us because the writer to Hebrews is applying this not just to them then, but to his listeners at the time. And... Uh, this whole idea was renewed, in effect, in David through Psalm 95. 
And that offer is still open. If, if you accomplish what, that which God has for you to do, you can enter into his rest. You've done what he's told you to do, whether it's entering the land or whatever. And that's what we're going to talk about. Now, for the Hebrew Christians, this, of course, is being offered to them in, in uh, Hebrews 4. Now, it's interesting, by the way, those that were Hebrews that were Christians, um, when Christ was speaking, that was A.D. 32 that, uh, that were at the end of his ministry, and if they are faithful, they will end up being, don't go back to Judaism or you'll die because they're gonna, the, the, the fall of Jerusalem is coming. If they're faithful, they will be like the rest of the Christians and go to Pella, east of the Jordan, like Christ instructed to them in Luke 21. And Eusebius writes that when Jerusalem fell, over a million people were killed, men, women, and children. No Christians were. Why? Because they followed their directions. Well, it's interesting, that same today that was 38 years for the, the, uh, the generation in Canaan is also is 38 years for the generation that's listening to the original listeners to this epistle. It's 40 years nominally, 38 years precisely. Where do I get that Deuteronomy 2.14? But anyway, now for us then, what is that rest? Well, that's the millennial rest, our, our inheritance that's awaiting us if we're faithful. Faithful doing what? Ah, that's glad you asked. That's what the epistle is all about. So we have past tense rest, that's justification rest. All of you should be in justification rest because if you've trusted Christ, he did 100% of what's needed. You are saved. You, your, your passport to, to heaven is stamped. Okay, you can enter. You may enter, but you don't inherit. What do you inherit? That depends on your maturity, spiritual maturity. How, much you, how, how, how far have you grown? You say you're saved, what have you done with it? That's the question that will be asked at the judgment seat. So in the future sense, of course, it's our kingdom inheritance. And most of us probably don't... Let, that should be prioritizing our lives. For most of us, it's an academic abstraction. No, no, no. It should be the primary yardstick that we measure every decision, everything we do, is, is, uh, is, 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 is to preserve that inheritance. Okay, well, the first seven chapters, we've, uh, you know, is the region we're in. Better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron. Those are the build-ups in his basic fabric. But the three warnings are the key points, and we're going to encounter the preamble to the third warning tonight. Because when we get to the end of chapter 5, the setup for the warning is there. And that's going to be the peak tonight. Later on, uh, in subsequent sessions, of course, we'll get through the other better covenant practical applications and so on. So we're going to go from chapter 4 to chapter 5 up to chapter 6 tonight to get a perspective. Now he's going to address the, major, the next major pillar of Judaism. We talked about angels, we talked about Moses. Now we're going to talk about the Levitical priesthood. And that's a big topic. In fact, he's going to set it up, give us a warning. We'll talk about the warning. Then from chapters 7 to 10, the priesthood is the pivot to the whole epistle, surprisingly enough. Prophet and priest. There's a difference between a prophet and a priest. That's the direction of the communication. Who's dialing who, right? A prophet is God's representative to the people, right? He exhorts and presents God. The priest presents the people to God. Here's the way I decided, it. I thought this, the prophet is God's presentation to the people. The priest presents the person to God. So that's, that's a way to view their roles and missions, if you will. In our case, Christ is both, right? Of course. But, uh, okay, we actually made it to the first verse of, of uh, 
this chapter 9. I'm, we're, we're ahead of, ahead of the Parker. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men, notice he's from men, he has to be a man. Christ can be our high priest because he's a man, right? Is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who gave us the most ultimate sacrifice? It wasn't Aaron. It was Christ. Who can have compassion for the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is also, is also compassed with infirmity. In other words, a good priest knows where you're at. So to speak, he, he, he can sympathize, he can understand. And Christ indeed can. Why? Because he's, he not only created you, he's a man himself. And by reason thereof, he ought, as for the people, he also for himself to offer for sins. Now that's referring, of course, to Aaron, because Aaron could offer sins for himself, offerings for sins. Christ didn't need to. He was sinless. He offered himself, actually. And no man taketh his honor unto himself. In other words, you, you don't become a priest because you choose to. You are selected. Now, in the Levitical sense, you had to not only be a Levite, you had to be a son of Aaron, a descendant of Aaron. You didn't volunteer or train, well, you trained, but I mean, you didn't choose a career of being a priest. You either were or were not a priest. You with me? Okay. I mean, you, you didn't take this honor unto yourself. But he that is called of God, as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest, and he was called to that office. He didn't seek it. He probably didn't want it. And uh, he certainly didn't merit it, as we'll see. But he was appointed by God. The Aaronic priesthood, not to be confused with the priesthood that we're heading into. He's setting up a straw man here. We're going to talk about the Aaronic priesthood. That's what his readers were used to. And you need to understand the predicament of the, re the reader to this epistle. Picture yourself alive after 32 A.D. before 70 A.D. That's the window. You're Jewish. You've got divinely appointed people doing divinely appointed rituals in a divinely appointed place over there in the temple. And you're giving that all up. When you get baptized for Christ, you're shedding your Judaism, becoming Christian. Can you imagine how that was? How they were not accepted. They were persecuted. That's what they're chafing under. They're thinking about going back to Judaism. I'll get saved later <laughs> kind of thing. That's not an option. That's basically the theme here. Can they lose their salvation? Absolutely not. And it's a, pre it's a prelude to this whole discussion of eternal security that I'm not going to rebadger here except to make one point. And that is that if you, if you can lose your salvation, God loses more than you do because he loses his good name. Because God, Jesus said that no one can take them out of my hand. All that you, Father, all that you give me shall come to me and whosoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. No one can take them out of my hand. In the next verse, this is John 10, verse 28 and 29. No one can take them out of my Father's hand. There are two hands involved. You can't get out of there if you tried. And I love to use Walter Bar a quote that I attribute to Walter Barton. If you, if you can lose your salvation, I've got a new name for God. Butterfingers. And it's, it's an irreverent way of making a point, perhaps. But your security is because of what Christ completed on the cross. He said, to tell us die, it is finished. So let's make sure that that's not a lingering concern. But there is a problem, and that's inheritance. Now, Aaron was singled out by God in Exodus 16. He was officially called to the priesthood, priesthood in Exodus 28. He was reconfirmed in that office in number 17. Then he was challenged. Korah led a rebellion. And God sort of explained it to Korah a little more clearly. 
<laughs> he opened the earth and swallowed he and his followers up. King Saul attempted to take the role of a priest. And he's a king. He's not supposed to be. The king and the priest were separate. Kings were from Judah. Priests were from Levi. The idea was separate. King Saul got impatient waiting for Nathan to show up, so he, he started to perform his own sacrifice, and that led to God's rejecting him as king and the, and the anointing of David, 1 Samuel 13. When King Uzziah tried to burn incense, here's again the king intruding on the office of a priest. He got leprosy. God's making a point here. God takes himself very seriously. We need to also. So now shifting back to the text here. In, so Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have I begotten thee. Where does he get that? Where is the writer quoting from here? Psalm 2, right? Jesus, our high priest, is mentioned in Psalm 2. He's, he's appointed high priest by whom? His father. Okay? Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And the psalm goes on. That's a quote from Psalm 2.7. He had been mentioned twice before in this letter, and we may have touched on it then, but now we're getting into it. And he saith unto him in another place, again, now the quote, again, the writer isn't building his case on any personal authority. He's simply quoting from scriptures that are accepted by his readers. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That phrase is a strange phrase. The more you know about it, the stranger it is. So we're going to touch a little bit about the order of Melchizedek in contrast to the order of Aaron. It's a different priesthood altogether. This quote happens to come from Psalm 110, verse 4, and I want to, I'm going to get into that tonight a little bit because I think it's a good review. But the Melchizedek priesthood is just a couple of verses in Genesis that are then echoed in Psalm 110, and picked up here for three chapters or more. And, and uh, it is the cornerstone of the entire epistle. It, it has few, there are no other parallels to this anywhere in the New Testament, anywhere else in the New Testament. And it's, gonna, it's going to develop an estimate, a comparison between the two covenants, the Aaronic covenant and the, 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 Mes Mel the Melchizedek, I should say, Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood. And it's also going to do, then, that's going to lead to a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, the very thing that gives our Bible its names, New and Old Testament, if you will. But we're going to take a look at the two root things here. It's too important. Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 is one of the most interesting, shortest, but most interesting Psalms in the entire Old Testament. Verse 1 itself is quoted 25 times in the New Testament. And of those times, four of them are in, the, in this epistle. It gets worse than that. Verse 4, the Melchizedek verse, is quoted four times in the New Testament. In fact, the, in the epistle of Hebrews, there are ten quotes or allusions alone. Just in this, in, so it's, it's obviously a key reference to the writer here. Let's take a look at it while we're at it. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That verse Jesus used to put the lawyers to total confusion. I'll show you that in a minute. Jesus used that verse to put the lawyers to total confusion. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies confusion. He was under attack. The Herodians, that's the political party, tried to trap him by forcing him to make a political statement that would mark him as a traitor to Rome, and they failed doing that. Then the Sadducees stepped up. That's the liberals, if you will. They tried to trap him with a ridiculous question regarding the Mosaic Law, and they, they, they failed there. 
Then the Pharisees, that's they're the, 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 the conservatives, you might call them, tried to trap him, and Jesus' answer puzzled them. So while they're all trying to regroup, he says, let me ask a question. They all had their shot at it, right? And when you're dealing with these lawyers, you better know what you're doing, right? He said, let me ask you a question. And so this is all in Matthew 22. The Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, son of David. They're no dummies. They knew that, right? Then Jesus said to them, how then doth David, in spirit, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit down at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's quoting the first verse of Psalm 110. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Well, that blew up. They, they murmured. Imagine they gnashed their teeth, whatever. Son of David. He, they knew he was son of David. That's all through 2 Samuel, all through the Psalms, lots of them, Micah 5 2. In fact, in Proverbs, it even shows up. Uh, 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 you know, what is his name? What is his son's name? If thou can tell, speaking of God in Proverbs 30. I won't start on that one here. Okay. No, I love this. I love this. No man was able to answer my word. <laughs> Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. <laughs> so this is a well-known episode in Matthew 22 where he puts, let me show you, though, what the whole thing hangs on. If you look at the first verse of Psalm 110 in Hebrew, you'll discover Yodhevavhei, that's the name of you know, the, 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 the Lord, the Lord. And, he, and it uses the term Adonai. In other words, the Lord said unto my Lord, at, at Adonai, the whole key is a Yod. That Yod on Adonai makes it possessive. The Lord said unto my Lord. You see, the writer is indicating possession here. So when you translate it, see, we missed that because we're not trying to translate it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit down. Jesus said, okay, if you know that, if, okay, if, if the Messiah is, if Christ is the son of David, how can David say he's my Lord? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.